I don't know whether you have noticed as you read your way through the Gospels how often we are introduced to the theme of servanthood. I know we often look at Jesus as the great teacher. We think of him as the magnificent healer, the miracle worker, the the man of such resolute strength that he could stand up to the pilots and the Herods of this world unflinchingly uh, and call them to account. But one of the great themes of the Gospels, if you study them really carefully, is this picture we get of Jesus as the ultimate servant. Have you ever stopped and really looked at all of the different ways in which Jesus serves needs for people? All the ways that Jesus served people. For example, the Bible teaches that Jesus served people's medical needs by healing countless numbers of them. Uh, Jesus served people's dietary needs by feeding thousands upon thousands of them. Jesus served people's hygienic needs by stooping to wash filthy feet uh, at times. He served people's legal needs by stepping in between them and their accusers. Remember how Jesus uh, stepped in between the people ready to stone the woman caught in adultery and the woman herself and served as her advocate there. Jesus served people's educational needs by establishing a school of life in which even fishermen and prostitutes were welcome to enroll in a world where those kinds of people were normally not allowed into the educational process. Jesus served people's physical and their emotional needs by lifting burdens from them and by taking them to places where they could rest. Jesus served people's social needs by declaring the worth of the outcasts of his society and by esteeming women and by noticing little people lost in the crowd. And even when Jesus was hanging on the cross in agony, in in terrible pain himself, even at that very moment when you would think if anybody had a right to, to turn their eyes and their attention and their hearts concern towards having their own needs met, Jesus still demonstrates for us this extraordinary passion to keep serving the needs, even the needs of the very people that were putting him there on the cross. So we see him serving the family needs of of Mary and John by giving Mary an adopted son and John a new mother to care for. He served the eternal needs of the repentant thief uh, next to him on the cross by assuring him a place in paradise. And Jesus served the spiritual needs of every human being who has ever lived by paying the great debt of our sin out of the vast wealth of God's grace. In all of these ways, Jesus makes it clear that at the heart of this universe is not an unfeeling, insensible, callous vacuum But at the heart of this universe, the beating heart of a glorious, loving, outreaching, serving God. As Christians, we follow the servant God. Now, it is also clear from the teaching of Jesus that he believed that anybody who really knew him, I don't mean who had heard about him, 
or who talked about him, but who really knew his heart, that any person that really knew him would actually move towards other people in a similarly servant-hearted kind of way. They would actually do the kinds of things that I've just described that Jesus did. Uh, Jesus expected his followers to be like their teacher in this regard. He made that very, very clear, that he wanted to train us to be completely like him in, uh, in this servant ministry. He said that his disciples' good deeds towards the real needs of other people would, would be like uh, the seasoning salt of society that would preserve society against decay. It would be like the illuminating light, the radiant light that showed the way for people. And in these ways, the very distinctiveness by which his servant people lived would draw many to give glory to God, would bring many close to the heart of the servant God himself. We know that Christ's first disciples took this very seriously. I mean, they, they, they got it. Um, by the end, they had it that they were to be like their master in all of these ways. As historian Rodney Stark has amply verified throughout his exhaustive research on the times of the early church. The early Christians actually tended the sick and the dying, not even of their own families or their own tribe or church. They would go out into the neighborhoods and find people who were sick and dying and come alongside of these people in merciful love. They would take widows and orphans under their wing, again, not just from their own family or their own church community, but but as they heard of the needs of others, they would take them into the life of the church and provide for them. The early church fed the hungry consistently, as we know is still our mandate. It's one of the reasons why we do what we do through ministries like Feed My Starving Children. They welcomed the stranger and the alien and the immigrant, the outcast, uh, into their circle. They advocated for women who were not being particularly well cared for in that society. They stood up for the rights and the welfare of slaves. They protected children and the dignity of life. They cared for prisoners and those who were enslaved in any other kind of way. In fact, the early church was so effective in doing this, says Stark. They were so good at improving the conditions, the practical conditions of life for people. They were so impressive in their servant spirit that that in a world that had largely gone dead to organized religion, you know, that had just this this, uh, buffet spirituality that meant nothing, of gods for everything, in a world that that had gone dead to really life-changing religion, the early church managed to draw millions of people to the heart of God through Jesus Christ. The Bible itself tells the story in this way. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, we read in Acts chapter 2. They gave to anyone as he had need. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The question I want to pose to you today is how might this actually happen again? 
how might it be that in a world that has largely, at least a society that has largely gone dead to organized religion, how might we live in such a servant-hearted way that the world around us looks and says, wow, now that's different. Now that's attractive. Now that's something I want to get closer to myself. How could we live in such a way, even within our own congregation's life, that we inspired the favor of all the people in the communities round about us? The answer is the same as the one once given to a man who was waxing eloquently to his wife on Valentine's Day. I love you so much, Myrtle, he said. I would even die for you. Do you hear that, honey? As he sat on the couch, I would even die for you. I love you that much, Myrtle. And she said, that won't be necessary, Harry. Just come up here, pick up that towel, help me dry the dishes. That's what I need. That's what I really need. We sometimes get confused in our time about the nature of servanthood. Uh, I think there are myths and misunderstandings, misconceptions that are common to our time that until we are liberated of prevent us from entering into the fullness of the kind of servanthood that Jesus models for us and teaches to us. And so I want to stop and consider today what servanthood in the style of Jesus is and is not. And I want to give you several contrasting pictures of that, if you'll permit me to, and then I'll let you go on your way. For example, we need to be reminded that servanthood is an opportunity, not an obligation. It is a glorious opportunity, not a burdensome obligation. Now, it's not always the case that we experience it that way. How many of you in your own households have, uh, have, have requ- requested something of another member of the household only to have them say, do I have to take out the garbage, feed the dog? Do I have to pick up my room? Does that ever happen to anybody else's house? Anybody ever say that themselves? Do I? Oh, do I have to? Sometimes serving a particular need feels like one of these burdensome obligations. It's like eating broccoli or, or doing your taxes, you know, or, or one of these other painful, like, homework. We know we're obligated to do this, but I really wouldn't do it if I didn't have to. This, however, is not serving as Jesus did. It's the the begrudging way we sometimes go about completing servant tasks. This is not what Jesus had in mind. The Bible says that it was for the joy set before him that Christ did the service he did to humanity. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that serving for Jesus was always a happy and easy thing. It was not. There's nothing about washing the stinking feet of fishermen or letting yourself be pinioned upon a cross that is anything happy or easy. But joy is greater than happiness. Real joy is something better than happiness, and it's not easily attained. 
In fact, Jesus once made that point. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, but it's hidden in a field. When a man found it in his joy, realizing the value of it, he went and sold all that he had in order to buy that field. Jesus is saying, in other words, that there will be costs to gaining the kingdom. But make no mistake, it is worth paying the price for the joy that comes from entering into doing the Father's will. When Jesus invites you and invites me to serve other people, to meet needs as he does, he is not laying an obligation upon us. He is offering us this glorious opportunity to have our little lives caught up in the majestic, magnificent movement of his grace through history and the lives of the people in our workplace, in our schools, in our, in our churches, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our society and world. He's saying, come find the joy of joining me in service. Secondly, true servanthood is a response, not a racket. It's an opportunity, not an obligation, and it is a response, not a racket. What do I mean by a racket? Well, it it seems to me scary how easily serving other people can become, at least I know in my own life, Just another one of those rackets I have, one of those systems, one of those games that that I set up in order to feel better about myself or earn the applause of other people or reap a tax break, you know, check out all my volunteer activities and my charitable goodness and look out how creative and hardworking and how sacrificial I am. But here again, this is not even close to the kind of servanthood that Jesus has in mind. Christ explicitly cautioned his followers against slipping into this racket mentality. Uh, He he told them not to be like the the Pharisees, for example, the hypocrites who announce their gifts to the needy with trumpets in order to be honored by other people. Um, He expects us to, to routinely serve people like it isn't a big deal like it's the normal thing. He expects us to do it often in secret, absolutely content that God alone knows what we're doing. He wants us to give to other people not out of a desire for our own personal glory, but as a response of gratitude for all of the amazing graces that have come our way in life and a desire just to somehow reciprocate, give back in some way from the wealth uh, that we've been given. So service is to be this responsive act, not this secret racket. Thirdly, serving is meant to be an act of communion, not condescension. For some of us, serving easily becomes uh, an act of noblesse oblige. You know what I mean by that phrase? It's this idea that and we may never actually say this aloud, but our thinking is the same. You know, I have so much. You know, I've just been so blessed. I've got so much. Uh, The noble thing 
is for me to share with this person who hasn't been so blessed as me. And, and so I, the charitable giver, am going to condescend to meet the needs of you, the poor receiver. And I'm sure that's melodramatic. But subtly, this spirit can invade us nonetheless. It can take over nonetheless. And it's wrong because the truth is more complicated than this. The truth about life is actually more complicated if we think about it. I mean, none of us are actually self-made people. You know, we're not nobility in the sense that we've sort of won battles that earned us all of the blessing we have in life. None of us is self-continuing. I had a a very young member of my family dropped dead this week. Boom, just like that. And he was working out, and he was taking care of himself, and boom. Because he, he's not a self-continuing person. None of us is. All of it is grace. None of us are self-fulfilling people. I mean, we can't do this on our own. We can't fill up our lives with what we really need to be joyful. And as any severe illness that comes along or disaster that strikes or crisis that comes into our lives reminds us extremely quickly we're all these dependent creatures. We're dependent upon one another. We're dependent upon the things that people we don't even know are doing or not doing. We're dependent upon, ultimately, the sovereign grace of God. Um, Another reason why we don't want to condescend towards others is because we're really not on a different level than other people at the end of the day. Certainly not before the cross, but even practically speaking, the poorest widow that you meet, the one with the widow's might, might actually possess spiritual riches that, that show you or me to be impoverished. How many of us, when serving the poor, have found ourselves very humbled by it seeing in in these people an enormous dignity and a goodness and a sense that we were somehow being served in the other direction through the encounter. This is why, ultimately, serving somebody else is not an act of condescension. It's actually one of communion. It's how we bear witness to the fact that we're all in this together, right? Right? We're in the boat together of life. We're, we're all bailing where we can and patching where we can and sharing bread where we can together. This is, this is what life is really all about. Fourthly, servanthood in the way that Jesus teaches it is a gift, not a guarantee. Most of us grow up learning, I know I did, that gifts often come with strings attached. Um, I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch mine. I'll do the laundry, but I'm assuming you're going to take out the garbage. And some of that, of course, is that positive reciprocity that makes for good community or good family life. If we're not careful, however, the contributions that we make in these various circles can start to feel like rightful claims on the behavior of other people. How many of us have done acts of apparent service expecting to be thanked for this? And a little frustrated when we weren't thanked strenuously or eloquently or frequently 
enough given all that we had just done. Um, Many of us will do works of service expecting to see changes in the behavior of other people. And we don't say it out loud, but inside we're saying, you know, I'm going to do this for you, but you better alter yourself in this way as I make these, these acts of service to you. Maybe we serve to get something else in return. I don't know. But as natural as all of that is, and it is natural, let me just go and say, that's normal human nature there. I mean, I, I get that. It's just not the divine nature toward which Jesus is calling us. Listen to his words in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting them to be, expecting to be repaid in full. But I say, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked and to the wicked. Friends, if we're to serve as Jesus served, then it has to be a gift with no guarantee that anything is going to come back our way save for the knowledge that in some small way we have been able to imitate the way that God in his amazing grace gives so much to you and to me. All of these different characteristics of servanthood I've been talking about here today ultimately converge in one final distinction that I think gets easily missed. True servanthood, as Jesus describes it, is a statement, not a strategy. Okay? This is especially important, I think, for Christian churches to remember. To put it bluntly, sometimes well-meaning Christians serve others as an evangelism strategy. Uh, They will go about doing acts of kindness to neighbors as a means of priming them. Uh, you know, for conversion. Uh, They'll sponsor free car washes or give away free meals uh, as a means of laying the groundwork to give out the tract. Uh, They'll sometimes even hold a community service day. I plead guilty to this one. Hoping the sight of all of those well-emblazoned Project Serve t-shirts We'll make everybody want to come to our church because we're such cool people Um, instead of going anonymously together out into the community and serving those needs um, just to be like Jesus. Um, These aren't the worst possible motives, okay? Let me just say that out loud. Uh, You know, there are a lot worse motives than, than hoping people would come to your church or that they'd read a Christian tract or, or that they'd, they'd in some way be interested in, in, in the faith. 
But when we look closely at the way that Jesus fed and the way that Jesus healed and the way that Jesus gave, there was never this hint of marketing or manipulation in his acts when he did good for people. It, It was always for this one reason alone. It was to make this simple statement, God loves you. He knows you. He, he sees you. He cherishes you. God really loves you. And whether you follow me or not, says Jesus, and whether you thank me or not, and whether you do good to me or not, it does not change the fact that this statement is true. That, and this is why I'm here doing this. God loves you this much. Spread wide arms wide, cross wide. He loves you that widely and that deeply. God loves you. If we are going to be the kind of witnesses to the life-changing love of Jesus Christ that we can be in our time, then our serving needs to be like this. And let me summarize. People have got to sense that we serve them not out of any sense of obligation but with a joyful sense of opportunity. They need to be clear that it's not just another racket that we are using to feel good about ourselves or earn their affirmation but it is rather a grateful response to the God who has been so good to us, who has served us. People must be able to discern that they are meeting in us not condescension, but a genuine desire to commune as another person who knows I also have needs that that I need help with. They need to know that what we offer them is an open-handed gift. It's not a, a covert attempt to wrangle some kind of a guarantee from them. And, and they, they may not fully understand it in first, at first, but, but in time, they will come to sense that what we are doing isn't a secret strategy, but rather a sincere statement that they are genuinely loved by this servant God. In his marvelous book, The Hole in the Gospel, our friend Richard Stearns, the head of World Vision and dad to our own Pete Stearns, uh, makes a very provocative and attractive challenge to us. He ponders what might happen to the credibility and to the influence of the Christian movement if our Lord's disciples today got even half as serious as those who were there in the first century about using what God has entrusted to us to really serve the world's needs. Picture, he writes, a different world. Imagine one in which two billion Christians embrace the whole gospel, all of the implications of it. Visualize armies of compassion stationed in every corner of the world, in every office, every school, every home, every neighborhood, all of them doing small things with great love. Might the world take notice, he asks. Would they ask new questions? Who are these people so motivated by love? 
Where did they come from? Why do they sacrifice so to help those that this world has forgotten? Where do they find their strength? And who is this God they serve? Brothers and sisters, you and I have got the capacity to bring that on. (laughs) We do. No less than those who followed in the first century. And it's what we're going to be thinking deeply about together over these coming weeks. How do we bring it on? How do we live out that kind of servanthood, a Jesus-like servanthood in all of the spheres of our life? Because this is the good news. God wants to make you and me agents of his life-changing love for the people of this world, wherever we go. So let's do it in the way that the master himself did. Wherever you go, in the spirit of Jesus, seek to serve needs. Please pray with me. Our Lord and God, we come before you in humble gratitude for the way you set our vision aright. We know there's such beauty and goodness in this way that Jesus walked. We know, Lord God, that if we were able to to love and serve in the way that, that he models, it would change things. That, that if this whole congregation and, and many other churches began to serve in this way, Lord, a lot of the issues that are so troublesome in our society would begin to dissipate and be replaced by a much better kind of commonwealth. And so, Lord, don't let us just brush this message off. Take some piece of it, plant it deep inside of us until it bears fruit. And teach us in these coming weeks what it means to follow the one who came not to be served, but to serve and who gave his life a ransom for many. We pray in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.